outside of my home state of Missouri, I probably have more friends in Iowa than any other state. I did my undergraduate work at Northwest Missouri State University up in Maryville, where a lot of the students who attended were from Iowa. I'd venture a guess that perhaps a third of the members of my fraternity were from Iowa, and that was probably representative of the entirety of the student body of around 5,000 people. I was not known nationally for a lot of things. For those who live on the east and west coast, it's like Missouri. It's just flyover country. Probably the most famous thing about Iowa is the movie Field of Dreams. It's based on a novel, Shoeless Joe, written by Canadian author W.P. Kinsella, who attended the University of Iowa's Writer's Workshop. And it tells the story of a farmer who has mysterious voices in his head telling him, If you build it, he will come. And that he should build a baseball diamond in the middle of his cornfield so a maligned ball player can come back from the dead and prove his innocence from accusations of throwing the 1919 World Series. Now, if you haven't seen the film, you should. And better yet, read the book. It's a tale of mystery and magic set upon the verdant rolling prairie of Iowa. It's not really a story about baseball. It's more about regret and selflessness and love and forgiveness. It's one of my favorite books that I read as an undergraduate and one of my favorite all-time films. But Iowa played an important important part in the craft beer revolution that most people are not familiar with. Even though it was in an off-handed sort of way, it was the birthplace of Fritz Maytag, an heir to the Maytag appliance and Maytag dairy fortunes, which are headquartered in the state of Iowa. Fritz was one of the younger children in the family, and rather than working for the company, as a young man, he headed to San Francisco in the 1960s to find himself. It was there he discovered a style of beer that he really liked a type of amber brew called California Common Beer, which uses lager yeast brewed at higher ale temperatures. He had a particularly favorite brand of this beer, and one day he learned that the brewer of this beer was soon going to be closing his doors. If the current craft beer revolution has a defined starting point, you might say that it was August 2nd, of 1965. That day, Fritz Maytag walked into this brewery, and using his inherited fortune, he bought a 51% stake in the business. Using marketing and business techniques that his family had perfected in Iowa, Fritz proved that a different style of beer other than American light lager could find a market in the United States. He pulled the brewery away from the precipice of failure and made a brand that is a nationwide favorite, even today. You know this beer. You've probably drank it before. You see, California common beer is also known by another name. When lager yeast ferments the brew at a higher temperature, it creates not only a lot of foam on the surface of the liquid, but also these whiffs of mist, which kind of look like steam, giving California common beer its better-known nickname, Steam beer. And the brewery that Fritz Maytag saved was the Anchor Brewing Company of San Francisco. And as Paul Harvey used to say, and I know many of you have no idea who the falafel Paul Harvey is, so, but he used to say, so now you know the rest of the story. This is episode number 12. 
Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica. Hello, everyone. Thanks once more for finding us out here in the podcasting universe and putting us into your ear this week. I am Alan Tatman, your host and the chief cat herder of Teams Brews Traveler. Back from Iowa, where we attended the Iowa Irish Fest last weekend, and we were, it was a great time, Uh, really was. We were lucky enough, uh, our friends, Patrick and Stephen of Gaelic Storm, uh, they were able to sit down and have a drink with us, and we had a nice, nice chat last Saturday night. And the people up in Waterloo, where they held the Irish Fest, they're just fantastic, greatest folks. Uh, We are certain to be headed back there next year. And speaking of Iowa, this week we are going to take a look at one of the fastest growing craft breweries, not only in Iowa, but in all of the Midwest, Toppling Goliath Brewing Company of Decorah. Also this week, Tony Rehagen and I had a conversation earlier today about the five most important craft beers ever brewed. And that was, uh, we could have gone on a long time about that. But first... I just want to take a quick moment to ask you to do us a favor. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. We want to keep the Bruise Traveler coming to you every week. And that is the one of the most important things that you can do to help us out. And if you're not an Apple user, hey, no problem. There are apps for iTunes that work on both your PC and your Android devices. Download it, subscribe, help us out. Also, take a few seconds to share the podcast with your friends. Just these little things, that's all it takes. Thanks. And now, let's get on with the show. And now we head on down the road with the Bruce Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find out. So uh, with the Fritz Maytag story, Iowa, if for no other reason than that, has a very important place in the pantheon of craft brewing history. And today there are a lot of great craft breweries popping up all across the state. And we'll be bringing you some more in the uh, coming weeks. One of the breweries that is rapidly gaining a growing reputation for excellent beers is located in the Alps of Iowa. That's the driftless till area of the state where the glaciers never flattened it out. And I went there last month to one of the places on my list, Toppling Goliath Brewing in Decorah. And Decorah is a beautiful town. It really is. And it's one of the places in Iowa where they have trout fishing. So, I mean, it's... It's, it's a great place up there. I was able to sit down and speak with owner and founder Clark Louie and his lead brewer, a remarkable young man that I was really pleased to meet named Michael Sabo. And we uh, sat down and we talked about brewing and marketing and making a destination for craft beer lovers. And that's about all I'm going to say this week because this is a great interview and it goes on for a bit. So... As they said in the movie, if you build it, they will come to Decorah, Iowa. And here it is, your interview of the week. (laughs) 
Hello everybody, coming to you from the Iowa Alps, <laughs> Decorah, Iowa, and the home of Toppling Goliath Brewery. And I'm here with owner, Clark Louie, and executive brewmaster, Mike Sabo. Thanks guys for having us on, uh, having us into the brewery today. Hey, thanks Alan, this is Clark talking. Appreciate you coming up, looking forward to the show. Great to be here as well, and thanks for uh, joining us here in Decorah today. You, you guys, your reputation precedes you. Uh, I've had people talking to me about toppling Goliath for a while. You got, you need to get up there. You need to see these fellas. They're making some great beer. And here's what amazes me: as I came up the road, you're like in the middle of these cornfields. Now, folks, if you've not been to northeastern Iowa, when you think of Iowa, you think of maybe gently rolling hills. And, or flat land and lots of corn. Well, there's lots of corn here, but there's nothing gently rolling or flat about the terrain in Northeast Iowa. This is beautiful country up in here. It's, it is absolutely. And then you come over the hill and there you have this huge state-of-the-art brewery. So a hundred barrels, right? Yes, we have a hundred barrel Steinecker brew house. Wow. Well, Clark, you'd be the one to ask about this. How did this all begin? Yeah, this is, that's a great question. Uh, this is actually the, uh, the end of a hobby that got a little bit out of control. So I started to make some beers, uh, actually started to make some wines with my wife and, and found out we really enjoyed fermenting. And I've had a long career in the beverage industry as a supplier. And so started to test the waters with home brewing and found out I really did enjoy making beer and accidentally made a few good ones. So had a, had a good time making some home brews, and it was really getting out of control. Had 21 fermenters in the basement at one time, 21 different carboys, and just had always thought Decora would be a good community for a small little brew pub. So a piece of real estate fell in our hands, and I decided that the model we had for a brew pub wasn't quite right, that instead we would start a nano brewery because we would want to have all the restaurants in town sell our beer and if we could survive with those restaurants we thought that that would be a good thing we could maybe have a nice little hobby business that would um, not not lose a lot of money just you know, provide a nice product for Decora, give us the chance to have an IPA on draft when we started the brewery 2009 there was not uh, there were not any IPAs on draft in Decora. you could buy some packaged but no one none of the distributors really believed that the local consumer would drink that that type of beer so that's how it that's how it began. It is. That's how it began. And so when you first started in 2009, how many employees did you have? That was the Nano Brewery. How many did you have? Well, it was just Barb and I when we first started, uh -huh. and then we we added a couple employees. Luckily, Mike joined our team in early 2010, about the time that some of our beers were starting to catch on. Mike came from the brewing industry with a professional background. And he came on board just at the time when we were buying a new, a new system. We bought a, a, actually it was a used system we bought, a 10-barrel system, which was a huge step for us, considering we were brewing on a half-barrel system. Wow, <laughs> that was a big step. So, Mike, what's your background? How did you get involved in craft beer? Well, I first got into beer when I was, when I was a teenager. I was, I had traveled over to Germany for a couple summers, and spent one summer in southern Germany and the other in northern Germany and the families that I stayed with there they introduced me to the German beer culture and that was something that really fascinated me and 
I really enjoyed my time and experience over there. But then when I came back over to the States, I was no longer old enough to purchase beer. But the convenient thing was I was old enough to purchase the ingredients to make beer. And so that's exactly what I did. Yeah, initially my family wasn't necessarily all in on that, but my friends certainly were. And that was enough motivation to, to get me going. And they helped me through all that. So before you came to, to work for Clark and Barb, were, were, were you brewing somewhere before or just at home? I was brewing at a, at a different Iowa brewery about an hour south of here. Okay. And so... Uh, How long there, were you with them? I was with them for, for one year. Any other breweries before that or besides your, your kitchen? No, I, like I said, I, I started brewing at home and uh -huh. I, I brewed throughout college. And uh, the day after I graduated from the University of Iowa, I got a job in the brewing industry. Nice. And that was, that was the brewery that I, that I first so worked at. And then, this is the only career you've ever had. Of course, you're a lot younger than I am. But, so are, are, are you from Decorah, Clark? I'm originally from about 20 miles from here, a town called Wakan. Okay. I'm, it's just east of here, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. And what about you, Mike? I'm originally from a half hour south of here. That's West Union, Iowa. Okay. Why Decorah? You said you had an idea that... Were you living in Decorah at the time you came up with the idea for the Nano Brewery? Yes. I've always liked Decorah. Uh, in growing up here as a, as a young man, I spent plenty of time coming over to Decorah, and... Uh, right out of high school, I joined the Air Force, and so when my wife and I came home, we lived in uh, a suburb of La Crosse, Wisconsin, on Alaska, mm -hmm. and we were both going to school at that time. Eventually, I got a job in Decorah, and we made our way down to Decorah and moved here around 1990. All right. And so I've, I've always have, have loved Decorah, and the reason we're in Decorah is we really enjoy the driftless part of Iowa, which is what you call this area that was missed by the glaciers. Right. Uh, the glaciers are beautiful bluffs and rivers, right. are expanding hardwoods. It's just a beautiful place to be. It is. Uh, it's a very diverse community, so we really enjoy that. Great schools. Um, and, and it just it, it says a lot about who we are, the fact that we choose to live in Decorah. Was this the best place to build Toppling Goliath Brewing Company? Probably not the best place economically, but we developed a business plan that made it the best place for us and, and our people. This is where our family is, and this is where we want to be. So our business model really relies on our distribution partners. You know, obviously we could have put this brewery up in, in Minneapolis. We could have put this brewery in Madison, and you, you, we, our tap room would constantly be packed. But we put it up in a small town, 8,000 people and went to work on a distribution model that we thought could be successful and in doing so we didn't realize we can also Build this brewery into a great destination right. We see so many people from neighboring states and from states far away here every weekend that it just it's inspiring for us And it, it drives us to want to continue to produce beers and customer service that will draw people to Decorah and we tell people Come for the beer, stay for the town, because when you get into town and check out the town in Decorah, you're going to find out why we love it here. Thank How many you. employees have you? So we're right around that 50 mark right now. Wow. Yep. And how, what's the population of Decorah? It's about 8,000 people. So hiring 50 people, that's a, sizable, that's a sizable industry in this town. It is. Yes, it is. And you've got room for growth. We're, 
We are hiring as we speak, Alan. That's great. Hey, the name you mentioned, Toppling Goliath. How did you come up with that? I'm glad you asked. It's A lot of people think it's a poke at the bigs. Originally, it was not. So my wife and I started Toppling Goliath Incorporated in 2002. And that was a marketing and consulting company that helped entrepreneurs with a great idea who didn't know how to navigate the this is my first business river, put together things like finance, business plans, grant writing, deal with government red tape, dealing with patenting, dealing with trademarks, all the different things that, that I had become very, very good at helping businesses do that. In other words, overcoming the obstacle or the Goliath in their way. Right. So that's really where the name came from. I was involved with several projects at the time, and the business really never took hold. And the only thing we did, we took the corporation inactive. I wanted to keep that name. I thought that name was special. So when we started the brewery in 2009, two things were happening. The global consolidation of beer was a reality, A. And B... I could do a $5 DBA, and that was the only cost to be Toppling Goliath Incorporated doing business as Toppling Goliath Brewing Company. The corporation already you exists. Already had the name. It saved all the legal fees. It saved all the research right. on, on getting a name. It saved the trademarking. It was all already done. And Mike and I, along with uh, the leaders in our company, have always taken the path of trademarking everything we do. You should. Yeah. It's Prote- important. To protect your investment. How big's the brewery? How many square feet do you have? Just to brewing? Well, just to brewing and production, we would have around 61,000 square feet. All right. And that would be just brewing and production, and that would include our corporate offices. Okay. We have a little over 9,000 square feet uh, for our um, tap room and for our entertaining areas. Nice. Also. Yeah, I notice you're still doing construction. You're putting up a pergola for your uh, outside seating area today. Yes. you have a 100-barrel system, brewing system. What's your per annum production right now? So this year we'll end up producing around 34,000 barrels worth of beer. We have a couple additional fermenters that, that will go online this fall. Uh, should be by the end of September uh, with another tank order being placed that we'll have online and fully operational by the end of quarter one, 2019. So what kind of growth does that represent from last year? annual growth do you think you can ballpark it yeah from from last year to this year uh we're somewhat similar i think we i think we're around twenty five thousand barrels last year yes thereabouts and then this year we're around 34 uh by the by the end of 2019 we would have the capacity capabilities of doing around fifty thousand barrels and a part of a part of this year has been uh, a brand new hundred barrel brew house getting that fully operational, brand new canning line, brand new kegging line, all that stuff coming together. So we, we stayed hyper-focused with the, with the tank capacity that we have, and we've been running that at maximum capacity. So now that we feel comfortable about what we can do with this canning line and this brew house, now we're ready to move further out. You know what, Alan, I'll throw into that also. Mike has had to pick up a production that we've had for the last three years. So although it doesn't look like growth, it is for us because we were brewing around twelve to 15,000 barrels with our partners in Lakeland, Florida. And that ended, we, we stopped that around December of 2017, 
and we've taken that load on as well. Wow. Yeah. Th that's just since you've opened this facility here. Yes. You're looking at uh, you're looking at at least what about twenty percent growth in one year. Yeah, our our growth has been uh, fairly rapid, but it's always done in a in a strategic way where we feel comfortable with the level of growth that we can achieve. Good. So, what's your distribution right now? I'm glad you asked. We just added a new partner in Connecticut, so we're we're excited for that. Um, the states we're in, the entire state. I'll start with the order of, of how we've done it. Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Illinois, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. We're in a 10-county area around Tampa, Florida, Connecticut, limited distribution in Washington. State or D.C.? State, limited distribution in Oregon, and limited distribution in California. We also have limited distribution in Brazil, South Korea, Australia. And we, we have limited distribution uh, throughout uh, Western Europe as well. Yes. Wow, that's fantastic. That's fun. Yeah. That's fun, and, and that's, that's some fun things for us because yeah. you know the challenge of cold storage logistics oh, yeah. to Wisconsin is easy. South Korea is a different story, but we are accomplishing it. That's amazing. Thank you. And now, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, you just picked up one of the most important places, the state of Missouri, but you're still working out all the details on that, right? We are. We started with our partner, um, Brew Hub has built a new tap room, uh, a new tap room brewery uh -huh. in St. Louis. And so, uh, Although we've been working with distribution partners for almost a year, we're not statewide yet, but you can get our beer in St. Louis proper at the Brew Hub Tap Room. We have a one-block distribution agreement with them. I'll add a, a link to the Brew Hub Tap Room because we do have a lot of listeners in the, uh, in the Missouri and, and St. Louis hey, Thank area. you. We, we, we have a lot of fans in St. Yeah, Louis, right. and we are very eager to get our beer in their hands. Well, I'll add a link in the show notes so you guys can go and find out where you can go and have Toppling Goliath beer on draft. Thank you. You're welcome. The portfolio. I know you've, you've won awards with your IPAs and your barrel-aged stouts, but looking at your taps down there, you guys are doing kind of a, a wide gambit of, of, of styles. What, uh, what, can, what can you tell us about the portfolio, Mike? So for the majority of our, our life, we've, we've kind of gone back and forth with uh, being able to have mul a multitude of uh, brands available. We always have our mainstays. Uh, we're primarily known right now for our, our hoppy beers, our stouts, uh, and another another style that's really been getting some momentum for us has been uh, the Berliner Weiss style. Yeah. So we do a we do a beer called Dragon Fandango. I had that and it was delicious. So that is that's a that's a sour beer that we do not too too sour. It's very very drinkable. It's well balanced because you've added the passion fruit and the, and and the sweetness to it. So it's a well balanced beer. Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head with that. That's. And that was that was the design of that beer. We we enjoy sour beers as well, but uh, there's plenty of them that we would have that we just felt we weren't interested in having more than one glass. And so we wanted to have a beer that was that kept the the drinker interested and thirsty enough for a second or third glass of it. You have that in package? 
Right now we have that beer draft only. We we do have future goals of being able to package. So. Yeah, those three fruits, dragon fruit, passion fruit, and mango. Right. Well balanced. Be, between flavor and color, it, it's, it, it's a winning combination. Yeah, it's a beautiful beer, so too. So really yeah. take and, my and hat off to Mike on that one. Yes, thank you. In nine years, coming up on ten of toppling Goliath, what was the worst day ever? Do you have I, one first? I do. Okay. <laughs> there have been different lawsuits we've been involved with in the brewery, and... When you're working your your Keister. team yeah, yeah. and your heart off, you have your nose on your grindstone all day, to be hit with frivolous lawsuits are something that it's just a gut check. It's just a gut check about the culture that you, you, you think may not exist with you, and it's, it, it's, it really can turn a day sour in a hurry. You know, and I'm talking, right. you, you imagine... We started this brewery. We lost money for five years. Sure. We thought we would. We knew when we opened this new facility, immediately we'd go back to losing money. You can deal with that. But when you're hit with a frivolous lawsuit that takes time and money, which, by the way, we persevered, but that takes so much out of you that that is just, um, that was the worst day. Without naming the litigant against you, what what a what what really happened? What, was it one of the names of one of your brands? No, no, it, it wasn't that. We've had many of those. Okay, we had many, those are easy. Right, those are easy. It was a, a, a little a little different than that, um, and I'll just leave it at that. Okay, so that was your worst day, and I can understand that. Uh, what's your best day ever? Well, I know my best day, and, and there's been many of them. But my, my best day was the first time that one of Michael's beers went to number one in the world. And for that, to have a brewer accomplish that, that's an amazing feather in his hat. And, and it's an amazing feather in the portfolio of our company. So that beer was called Morning Delight. It's his creation. It's his baby. It's a beautiful imperial stout that's made with maple syrup, Coffee, non-barrel aged, so that was very enjoyable. Where, did, where was that award given? That that award was given on on the beer on the consumer beer sites. Okay, which is um, would be Rate Beer and Beer Advocate. Right, and also just to give you a testament of that beer that happened in 2015. Just recently, last week, I found out that Toppling Goliath with Mike at the wheel won a gold medal. This year for Morning Delight in the U.S. Uh, U.S. Beer Open, nice. So it's it's still winning. Which you know that you're talking about medals. That doesn't happen. I mean, a beer that won a medal four three years ago rarely wins. Rarely again. wins again. What's something about this industry, Clark and Mike both, that has surprised you? Something you didn't expect. To come along after you got involved with it, I think for the most part it, it's it's been a very uh, inviting and, and fun industry. Uh, so we were able to to meet up with with other brewers, and uh, we we all have our own methodologies, our own philosophies that we help to have our teams habituate throughout the throughout the operations. Um, but all in all, we can always get together and we can we can share beer with one another. 
Um, I, I've really enjoyed that. I've, I've, I've enjoyed some of the collaborative aspects that we've been able to be a part of. Uh, some of our um, friends in the industry, one of, the, one of those would be Doug out of Cycle. He's, he's actually originally from Iowa, so it was fun to connect with him, and we've, we've brewed with him a couple times. You know, it's, you brought up that he's, from, that he's from Iowa. It's funny, there, Iowa has a great connection with a lot of craft brewing in the country. And, the, of course, Fritz Maytag, Saving Anchor Steam. Saved a style. He did. He saved, he saved the style. And really, he and probably Charlie Papazian were the two most important people in the beginning of the craft beer revolution. But, you know, and he's from right here in Iowa. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but our Dorothy's Lager, mm-hmm. which was named after my grandma, it's a type of beer that she liked. Also does honor Fritz Maytag because we do brew it in the California common style. Okay. I'll have to try that out before I get out of here. Yeah, I just had one. <laughs> Actually, it was 50-50. Half Dorothy's. What were, what were you drinking right there? What, it, what stout was that? It was half Dorothy's and half Rover Truck Stout. Okay. So that's my favorite blend, my first beer on a Friday, typically. So, well, you brought it up. Blend beers. You don't have a problem with those. I know a lot of beer snobs are like... Oh, you should never blend beers. That's just the worst thing you can do. But Yeah, I'm not good at being a snob. <laughs> never have been. <laughs> well, Mike, as executive brewmaster, what is your opinion of bre- blending beers? We do it all the time, and especially with our, with our barrel-aged beers. Right. So oftentimes if, I, if I'm down in the tap room, I might just stick with a, a full glass of pseudo-sue. Occasionally I'll blend something. But our approach to, to blending is, is a very open one. And in fact, that's, that's, a, that's a part of our barrel aging process because we'll sample all the barrels that we have and two barrels that would be the same age and variety sitting right next to each other could have different characteristics. One could be more vanilla, one could be more chocolate. But our goal for our barrel aged beers, our brands that we put out there, we take more of the, the approach of a distiller where we're, we're, ben, we're blending these barrels in very specific percentages to reach an end profile. So that's a long-winded way of saying that we really enjoy blending beer. That's nice. We did a bunch of it last night. <laughs> so we were, we were sitting right at this table with, uh, with beers from four different groups of our barrel aging program. And I have to tell you, it was pretty magnificent. Pretty, pretty enjoyable. Experimentation. Yes. Yeah. What, is, uh, what are the greatest challenges that you see coming down the industry way? It, it's a hyper-competitive hyper market right now. Right. Um, so, you know, you, you, and your, your challenge is with your distribution partner because there's no single toppling Goliath distributor. Right. So you have to find a way to stay relevant in their brand in their book of brands in their market in their market and so by doing that you have to stay on top of your innovation and by being on top of your innovation means you have to stay on top of your supply chain all things that require a very high level of strategic planning three years in advance in doing that you're also trying to guess the direction that the consumer is going to go so those are really the challenges we face, A. And then B, great craft breweries are popping up all the time because it's very common for a brewer to come to learn the hows and the whys of making great beer and leave and do it themselves. 
So that's your challenge. For instance, take a look at Florida. 15 years ago, in my opinion, was a wasteland for craft beer. Now go to Florida. There's great craft beer everywhere. Where did a lot of those brewers get their start or their inspiration from one brewery mm-hmm. in Florida? Which one was that? That was Cigar City Brewing Company. Okay. So, and that, that spawns people that both work there and then move to other breweries or start their own breweries and people that maybe are tasting their beer and learning that this is what our consumer wants and, hey, I can make that beer. Right. So that's what's going on. So it's a hyper-competitive marketplace, and you have, to be, uh, you, ha- you have to be ready to compete. Even though we have an industry that we're all shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder and it's all smiles, guess what? At the end of the day, we don't pay each other's bills. You have to keep your nose on the grindstone right. as far as your processes, which from the day we opened this brewery, we were committed to process improvement every day, and we continue to, to do that, and you have to have your ear to the marketplace. You have to be willing to accept what the consumer is saying, weed through it, and, and figure out how to please, ultimately, our bosses, the consumer, in such a way that they understand that we are human, but we are working at making the best beer humanly possible. On the production side, Mike, what do you see as the challenges coming down the road? I think it has to do uh, with the procurement of the best raw materials. Right. Uh, So as there's been more and more breweries that have entered the marketplace and more and more of them are are brewing in particular hoppy beers, uh, certainly the the hop suppliers have increased their acreage that they grow, uh, but they haven't necessarily increase their infrastructure enough to support that additional poundage of of hops and so we we take a group of us out there every single year and we'll spend a couple weeks out there we meet with the farmers and we have a a fairly robust internal process that allows us to select from the best of what's available and that's something that we that we feel helps provide us a competitive advantage that's a, that's, a, that's a key thing for us, and additionally, uh, Clark touched on this earlier, I would also have to say the work that we put in with our distribution partners, so supply chain management, and being able to get our beer in the hands of the consumer as quickly as possible, we're, we're here to, to feed and, and serve their needs. So getting beer to them quicker, fresher, stored right, and brewed with the best ingredients possible and everything from hot side production to cellar to packaging uh, every single process executed perfectly one more question before the lightning round what can folks expect from toppling goliath coming up the road any big things that people ought to know about i think so i'm going to lead into the answer and and mike's going to follow up and Some people might not think this is going to be a sexy answer, but we do. Uh, We've been working on the development of a fantastic full-flavored Pilsner. Mm -hmm. And it's a project that really, really is near and dear to both both Mike and I, being that that in both of our travels around the world, really appreciate a well-made Pilsner. This is a very very German-centric Pilsner. Um, You know, Mike, I've had the great pilsners also i never had the, my favorite one until mike introduced me to it and what was that 
That'd be Roathouse Pilsner. It's brewed by by Roathouse, and they're located in southwest Germany. Okay. So is that in Bavaria? Right next door. Right so next it's, door. It's in Baden-Württemberg. Baden-Württemberg. Okay, thank you. My geography of Germany is limited. So when when is this going to be available to uh, to the public? We hope to have this this project uh, unveiled by the end of summer, hopefully by by Labor Day time frame. Okay. So we've got a couple other fun beers. We've got a beer that we've only kicked out once. It's called Morning Latte, and we'll plan on getting this beer in the package. And it's a beautiful beer that we made one time with the second runnings of our Morning Delight. It was just fantastic. Uh-huh. It's, it's a lactose stout. It's on the low end of the ABV, but it's rich creaminess is just like a cappuccino espresso just just Coffee lovely notes just yes mocha yes yeah. just Sounds lovely we'll where our our sour no. program no, no. <laughs> our sour program is continuing its development here in the brewery we we will be upping our kettle sour we've been experimenting with that and also in the two-year plan we'll be building another facility on site and that will be our, our sour, our actual souring brewery, which will be a complete separate facility on this same site. So we're, we're excited to do that. I'd like to end these interviews with the lightning round. Are you guys ready? We are. We're ready. All right, since you are toppling Goliath, the lightning round is famous giants. Five questions. And from the world of popular culture, Andre the Giant or the Jolly Green Giant? Andre. Andre. Okay, from the world of Greek mythology, Atlas, who held the world on his shoulders, or Prometheus? Atlas. Atlas. (laughs) Number three, uh, this is kind of a hybrid, Paul Bunyan or Hercules? I'm Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan all the way. All right. And uh, from uh, extinct uh, fauna, mammoths or mastodons? I'm mammoths. Mammoths. Yeah. Boy, and, and from uh, and from the world of movies, King Kong or uh, Jurassic Park's Tyrannosaurus Rex? T-Rex. I was already thinking King Kong when you said the world of giants, <laughs> even though T-Rex fits better yeah. with our brewery. There are no wrong answers. You have passed the lightning round. Clark, Mike, thanks so much, guys. Hey, uh, thanks for coming to Decora. Here's a toast. Cheers. Prost. That's it, folks. Okay, so first things first, I have to apologize to Michael. Uh, in the introduction to the interview, I said he that his title was lead brewer. I'm sorry, he is executive brewmaster, which even is, makes it even more remarkable for a young man of his age. He's quite talented. It's obvious just the way he talks about beer, his passion for it. It was great. I got to sit and talk with him, and uh, he introduced me to their Twisted Galaxy IPA, which I'm going to tell you, it's fantastic. It's uh, 8%, a double IPA, 100 IBUs, but it's got plenty of malt backbone to hold it up. It's citrusy and hazy and delicious. I mean, it's so good. And I probably, I had a few of them, and I realized, oh, wow, I probably shouldn't drive. So I asked, hey, uh, would it be okay if I just 
crashed in Brulissi's out there on the parking lot. And Clark even came and said, well, how much amperage do you need? I said, well, I'm self-contained out there. I'm fine, but just I'll be up and gone in the morning before you guys even know what's hit, know what's happening. And so they did. They, they allowed me to stay there. And that's a good thing, too, because I was planning on going to a campground uh, not too far away, a state park. And a massive thunderstorm came through with some horrendous winds. I mean, it was bad. And we were up, there were no trees around where the uh, brewery is. But if I'd have gone to the campground, I am sure that I would have sustained damage uh, from falling limbs to the RV. So thanks again, Clark, uh, for allowing me to stay there overnight. And Michael for being such a great host throughout the evening. And I want to thank Jessica Zilka. She set up the whole interview with Clark and myself and Michael. It was a great visit, and I'm going to have to get back up there as soon as possible. And I'm realizing something with this Brews Traveler project. There are a lot of great breweries out there, folks, and I'm starting to realize that it's going to take some due diligence on my part to get back and visit these places for a second time. But I know I can do it. I know I can. (laughs) I just got to work harder. They've got a great event coming up at Toplin Goliath on Saturday, August 25th. They are releasing the 2018 version of Michael's award-winning brew, Morning Delight. His interpretation of stout brewed with maple syrup and coffee, and they're having a huge party to mark the occasion. But if you want to attend, you're going to need to get a ticket. They're having four sessions during the day, but uh, still, tickets are certain to go fast. If you... Go to their website and click on the events calendar. You can find out how you can be a part of this big party. Topland Goliath Brewing Company is located at 1600 Prosperity Road in Decorah, Iowa. The tap room opens at noon, seven days a week, and stays open Sunday through Thursday until 9, and Friday and Saturday until 11. Tours are available daily. Check the website for details. And if you'd like to know more about toppling Goliath and all of the great things that Clark and his co-founder and partner, his wife Barbara, and Michael are doing up there, check out the website tgbrews.com. Hey, What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? Mr. Tony Rehagen, how are you, buddy? Doing well. How are you? I'm great. Uh, I was over your way yesterday afternoon, Marilee, and I had to do a little shopping in St. Louis. Popped back into Four Hands. Of course, all the guys were up in Madison with the uh, beer festival going on up there. Anything anything new going on at Four Hands? I tell you, they have a, a hazy, fruity IPA. It's it's fantastic. It's like pineapple and or mango and vanilla, and then they've got a pineapple sour going on, and uh, you know they just those guys just make good beers. They, it's, I mean, it's true. Yeah. I, I just bought a, a four pack of their uh, on cue. It's like hibiscus cucumber. Uh, oh, Merrily, really tasty. Yeah, Merrily had a pint of that, and that was yeah. That I you know I had little glasses because I was driving. So, but right, right, it was really good. So what have you got for us this week? Well, you know, I thought I thought I'd liven things up, and I don't know about you, but I'm like obsessed with uh, with lists, everything lists. You know, whether it's 
best Cardinal free agent signings of the John Moseliak era or best Radiohead albums or best Star Wars movies. I can't get enough of it. I go and I read all the different lists and I try to compare the notes. And I think there, there are two basic reasons. Number one, it's just a great source of debate. Uh, and and I, I know you're like me. You and I are debaters, especially over like beer sitting at a table. And I know for a fact that we drive our friends absolutely ape with it because they some of them just want to sit and drink and have a good time. And we want to argue and, and debate. We, <laughs> we want to have a discussion like uh, right. like in the old salons, you know, of, uh, of 18th century Paris or the Greek symposiums of Aristotle and... Plato and Socrates. We want to discuss things. That's what we're right. here. That's what we're here for. Right. Well, that's the thing, and, and that's the cool thing with these lists is what, what I like reading about them is that you. And what I like about debating is you kind of force yourself to build an argument, and it's really just a chance for you to think about why you like what you like or why you love what you love. Right. And that's what that's the cool part to me. I love as you do craft beer. That's why we're here. Um, and food and wine. This is this is a little while ago, but I just came across it recently, and I, I read it again. Um, food and wine released a list of its 25 most important American craft beers ever brewed. Um, it asked a panel of 24, uh, 21 uh, brewers, executives, retailers, journalists, uh, people like Sam Adams founder Jim Cook, uh, Sierra Nevada founder uh, Ken Grossman, Jalopy Stephen Hale, uh, food writers, uh, beer writers, podcasters like Justin Kennedy from Beer Sessions Radio, um, and even like Julia Hurst from uh, CraftBeer.com. And basically what they did was is they, they asked each voter to nominate five to seven American beers they consider to be the most important of all time. Um, and that, that's kind of a – it's a broad category because, as you'll find out through the list, it's uh, basically – it's most important. It's not the best tasting. It's not the best selling. It's not the first. It's, it's, and each, each one can have its different, different you know, routes to being important. Voters were limited to two beers from any one brewery and encouraged to diversify their choices across the years, the states, and styles. And when the, in case of the brewers, they were allowed to vote for themselves, and you'll see some of them are in this list. Every single beer on the list received at least two votes, meaning a brewer self-endorsement only counted if it was seconded by another voter. So the final order was determined by strictly, you know, putting all the votes received and uh, with the exception of any ties. And then they use their editorial judgment to determine the ranking. And what you see from looking at the list is there's a lot of different reasons and a lot of familiar beers uh, and the reasons they made the list. For instance, you'd think the Anchor Steam, everybody like goes back to 1965 when Fritz Maytag you know, bought up and saved uh, the anchor anchor brewing in San Francisco from bankruptcy right. as kind of the pinpoint of the uh, of the craft beer renaissance. Uh, but but Anchor Steam only comes in number eleven. Their their open air fermented well, that, lager. That's surprising. Well, it's interesting though, but there, but Anchor's Liberty Ale, which is from '75, just a few years later, mm-hmm. came in at number six because they consider it more important because it brought more bitterness. It had like a 47 IBU, yeah, well, which was unheard of uh, at the time. Yeah, but here's my debate: it's not the beer that Fritz Maytag made; it's what he uh, saved, and he showed that a brewery could be viable even right. if they're not brewing light American lager in the age of mass consumerism. Sure. No, and that's 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 valid, and that, that, yeah, that's I, I, part that's, of the reason we love. That's this what stuff. I would argue with these people about. I mean, I think I think he belongs in the top three, but that's my that's my opinion anyway. Their Liberty Ale from '75. Right. Basically, they may said it's more important because 
it did the same thing as far as bringing Anchor into the mainstream, but it also brought the bitterness, which is well known now in craft beer, and it reinduced the dry hopping method, which is prevalent today. Whereas Anchor Steam was another was another it was a differently made lager, but it was just kind of a progression of the lager drinking. And that's their argument. Like for instance, uh, you know, uh, another thing that comes into play is the methods and trends that created around the product. Like Oscar Blue's Dale Pale uh, Dale's Pale Ale is number fifteen, pretty much just because it was one of the first craft beers to be canned in large scale. You know, right. so that that's that's what makes it important. Um, Three Floyd's Dark Lord in Russian Imperial Stout, widely regarded as a highly rated, uh, you know, Imperial. It made the list strictly because it was the first limited beer release to have its own like big event with it, with buyers lined up around the blocks, which they still do every day, Dark Lord days. And now that's very common as far as like building the brand. So you kind of see the the gamut um, that they use as criteria to make most important beer, right. uh, and that's that's what makes it fun to debate, I think. But uh, I've narrowed it down to the top five, which we can discuss discuss right here. Number five, uh, and I've actually had the pleasure of having all these beers, and I think you probably had a lot of them too. But number five is uh, one of the more obscure ones on the list. It's Hetty Topper from the Alchemist in Vermont. I have not uh, had that. Mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of going up there for work a couple years ago, and they all told me I had to have it. And it's an East Coast style double IPA. Um, but it, what, why they think it's most important is because it was like one of the first real geek beers. Uh, <laughs> when, it, when it was released in 2011, it was it was kind of the rave on rape beer and untapped. I mean, people were starting talking about it as the you know the best beer in the world, um, and that's kind of what it was known as. It kind of got that following. Uh, and largely because it wasn't available where people could test it widely. I, you know, I, I went up there and, and tried it uh, at the Burlington Airport. Actually, they have a really cool little bar there. It, it was good. I don't know if it's the best bureau in the world. But their argument for it being so important is that uh, whether it's the best beer in the world or not, that it brought respect for the IPA movement from somewhere besides the West Coast. It was over up in New England. Because it was distributed only within 25 miles of the brewery, it's kind of that prime example of the rare sought-after beer. And that's what we talk about with like New Glarus and, and you know, Top of the Life, the things that are sought after those obscure special beers. Number four is another one, and this one is strictly for style. And it's interesting, and I think it makes a good argument. Um, Allagash White, which is from Maine, and it's a, it's a Belgian wheat that was kind of released back in 1995. Now, if you re- remember 1995, I mean, Blue Moon was still kind of a stranger. Um, New Belgian Sunshine Wheat was just coming around. Boulevard Wheat from Kansas City was out there. And if you think about it, it really is. Like, if you talk about the... the the great bridge from the American pale lager to craft beer, it wouldn't be the IPAs that are so prevalent because no. that, that's going to smack you in the mouth. The wheats are kind of the perfect like gateway out of the lager style and into craft beer, if you think about it, because it's yeah. light. It's got that effervescence. Bridge beers. Yep, exactly. And then this and this is what they're saying is because this was one of the first ones widely produced that Allagash White uh, is was important and number four because it was a great bridge beer. Well, I'm embarrassed to say I have not had that one either. Of course, I, well, I, mean, I have not spent much time in New England since the early 90s. So anyway, definitely had one by this brewery. Number three uh, is Goose Island Bourbon County brand stout. Right. Right. Uh, right out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, uh, and, and the reason they say it's important and it's true, I remember it now because, you know, you go in any craft beer and you go into Forehands and they have kind of in that window behind the bar that they have the big stacks of, of oak and of the, of the barrels, the old right. tiny wooden barrels. You see them at all kinds of breweries now. Uh, kind of as part of the part of the bric-a-brac, part of the atmosphere, but back in you know the 1990s, that was unusual. You didn't yeah. you didn't you didn't age your your beer in, in ba- bourbon barrels. Barrel aged. I'm trying. I'm sitting here real quickly trying to go through my uh, my hard drive in my head and remember when I first 
saw barrel aged beers. And I know it's been a while, but I think it was Goose Island. I used to drink at their brew pub in Lincoln Park quite a bit because my my buddy Brooks, he um, the store he managed for Patagonia was right there in the same complex. And I think Goose Island was the first place that I had barrel aged beers. That would have been the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, well, it's cool. The cool story about it is like back when they first tapped it in nineteen ninety five. It was so strange that when they entered it into the Great American Beer Festival, they had to enter it as an imperial stout because there was no there category. Was no for category barrel age. Yeah. Huh. And it got and it got disqualified. It got disqualified because they said while it was tasted well, it was too strong at thirteen point eight. That it was just too strong for them, um, which I mean shows you kind of that now that's kind of the the norm for those those barrel aged stouts. And of course now, of course there's a there's a barrel uh, bourbon barrel shortage for brewers. You can't find them anywhere. Right. That was the first notably barrel aged beer. Right, right. Okay. That's kind of become the prevalent trend now. Right. Uh, yeah. Everybody, every, if you're not barrel aging beer now, you, you're kind of an oddity. So. Right. Yeah. So what's right. number it's two? Thing. Yeah. What's number two? Well, yeah. And so we've done it because, like, because of the buzz they created. You see the style they introduced and the method of brewing. But number two is there. I mean, basically for the business, the business of craft brewing, and it's hard to deny this, even though, and it, it, you almost don't even think about it anymore. But it's Sam Adams Boston Lager. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. You know, because Jim Cook was the guy who made it okay to quit your comfy day job and, and dare to open a brewery. And, of course, you know, he's worth billions now probably. And kind of his old ads, and this was in the in the Food and Wine article, that uh, the big breweries spill more beer than I make in a year, he used to say, uh, mm-hmm. some of his early ads, which is not probably not as true as it used to be. Nah. <laughs> um, but ironically, that, that it was him becoming so big, becoming, you know, on every tap handle in every airport and every bar across the country um, that really put craft beer in front of people's faces. Like that was the first right. one. And I, I remember this distinctly, too. Um, I, I, it's hard to believe that it was first brewed in 1984 and that far back. But and you see it everywhere. And then, so it was the first one. It was like first one that was up there with the Coors and the and the, and the Budweiser's that you were like, oh, what's that? And it it was in people's faces. Yeah, you know when I after I left Mizzou in '88 and I was out, uh, I was working for uh, this company that I was working for at the time, and they they uh, marketing and sales, and I was sent all over the country, um, flying in and out of airports, and that's when I first saw Sam Adams, and it had that very distinct uh, white handle. It was uh, like. It looked like it was lathe turned in a picture of uh, a cartoonish representation of Samuel Adams, who, by the way, historically speaking, he was uh, more of an agitator than he was a brewer. And uh, everybody brewed beer back in colonial America. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that's really remarkable about Jim Cook is not only he was a great marketer, he was a great salesman, but... He also had a good product to sell. I mean, you can, you know, they say good salesmen could sell a refrigerator to Eskimos. Jim Cook ac- actually had a good product to sell to people. Mm-hmm. And when he was he's very hands-on, too. You see the commercials, and that's the real deal. Like, he's always there tasting. He's always there. That would be kind of what I'm, I'll always like to try new things, but like, given, yeah. given my brothers, I'll have, a, I'll have a Sam Adams. And sure. It's, it's still really, really it's good. Still, it's still a good beer. What does Food and Wine Magazine say is the number one most important craft beer ever brewed? Drum roll. Boom. 
Yeah, well, basically, you know, we've talked about all these different aspects of what makes beer great, and this one combines a bunch of different ones. Uh, Brewed in 1980, it was one of the very first pale ales, kind of bringing the whole cone cascade hops way different than anything that was was out there at the time. Uh, While it's not as ubiquitous as Sam Adams, which was number two, it was definitely one of the early craft beers to be available on a large scale. It kind of became omnipresent. You kind of just always saw it everywhere. And unlike a lot of the Trailblazers, it's really kind of maintained its quality over the last 40 years. Uh, it's it's still a very highly rated beer. It's still winning awards. Uh, and the beer is Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. And I mean, you, oh, you, yeah. it's, st- it's still a remarkable beer. Um, like I said, it was kind of groundbreaking upon its release. Uh, and now it's worth an estimated, like the brand itself is worth an estimated $1 billion. And there are all kinds of different kinds of Sierra Nevada uh, beers. But it's that, that, that flagship beer that's still doing it, you know, 40 years later now. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's it was the uh, on the list. Some notes about it was is that uh, on this list, it was the only uh, beer to appear on over half of the voters' lists. So yeah. it, it definitely deserved to be be number one. Uh, we we tend to forget, you know, these pioneers. Now, oh, that's so pedestrian now, like Boston Lager and Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Okay, kids. This is your Uncle Al telling you there was once a wilderness where all you had was light American lagers, and it sucked. We didn't realize how bad it was until these guys came along and started to show us that, hey, beer can be better. You know, they're good beers. They're great beers. Yeah. Yeah, and like St. Adams, too, like you just you don't have a bad one. Like you know exactly what you're getting every time. You're getting it, and some people kind of find that boring, but, I mean, it, that's reliable, and it's just it's always good. Again, the younger drinkers don't realize how bad it was. I suggest that anybody out there that's a craft beer drinker read the book Audacity of Hops to give you a history of what the wilderness was like before the craft beer revolution. Here's another list I would like to know. Uh the most important people in yeah. craft brewing. And I think that one of the ones that it would have to be Charlie Papazian, who uh, sure. th- wrote The Joy of Home Brewing. And then, of course, Fritz Maytag, who I talked about a little bit earlier in the show, and Jim Cook. Now, there's yeah. there are other guys that came along, uh, but I think those three would be in the top ten most certainly. Yeah, that would be a good start for the Mount Rushmore craft hey, beer for sure. Yeah, it would be. Hey, have you got a link to that article? I do, yeah, and I'll what? send it along. Yeah, with well, email that to me, and I'll put it in this week's show notes. Sounds good. Thanks. Hey, Tony, thanks for uh, bringing that to us. It's uh, You and I could probably sit here and have uh, burned up an entire afternoon on Monday. Uh, recording this, but uh, Mr. Tony Rehagen, freelance journalist. Thanks, Tony, and uh, you have a great week, and I'll talk to you next time. Sounds good. Thanks, Alan. All right. Cheers. See you, buddy. Take care. You've been listening to The Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers. So that's it, folks. Thanks again for listening. Please find us over on Facebook and Instagram at The Brews Traveler Podcast and on Twitter at The Brews Trav LR. Tell your friends about us. Please share the podcast wherever you can. Head over to iTunes, show us some love, five-star rating, and give us a hug with a glowing review. And subscribe. Please, please subscribe. 
And if you'd really like to help in deferring the cost of diesel to keep Brulissi's going down to the road, head over to the website and click on the support button and find out how you can help us on our Patreon page. Any and all help and support is, as always, greatly appreciated. The soundtrack to the Bruce Traveler is so generously provided by our friends at Gaelic Storm. Patrick, Stephen, Ryan, Pete, and Katie, thanks, guys. You were uh, It was good to see you this last weekend. Check out all of their music on iTunes or wherever you get your music or visit their website, GaelicStorm.com. And while you're there, check out the tour schedule. Their tour they're putting on this year is fantastic. You should see them when you get a chance. It's a, it's a great show. Marketing consultation is provided by Mission Digital Marketing. And this week, I'm headed to Georgia and Sweetwater Brewing Company in Atlanta. And then the week after that, I'll be at Bay St. Louis, Mississippi and Lazy Magnolia Brewing Company. And along the road, I'll be checking out some places in Tennessee and Alabama before I get back home. And if I don't see you at any of those places or at your favorite tap room or pub, I'll see you right here on the podcast. And remember, take care of each other and take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. And Marilee, I love you, honey. You are the measure of my dreams. So goodbye, everybody. And so long for just a while. I'm a beginning of teen, of teen, score more on the dead lily green, and I know I'm from the leafy from the basin to the zoo, and I know him by the name of Old Johnny Doo. Of all the things going to the back, and it's the best time, but when a man is tired, he can sit down and rest, he can beg for his dinner, he's nothing else to do, when he comes around the corner with his old wicked do. And I'm a little, little fancy haired girl, one day we'll go on a little fancy haired girl, let us say, we'll go on a little bag of man, and how do you do with your rags and your bags and your old wicked do? Buy a pair of leggings and a collar and a tie, and a
going to bed for just getting lit at night When the fire's all raked and out goes the light Time for the story of me old wicked dudes Can I be covered with the yeah, from old Johnny Doo? I got the sky I got the road I got the sky Success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. From his book, Shoeless Joe, author W.P. William Patrick Kinsella. Born May 25, 1935, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Died September 16, 2016, Hope British Columbia, Canada.